Like Josh said, we're in a teaching series called Founders, and I have the privilege of speaking in our second week. Really funny story, though, um, was, I thought it was kind of funny. I was introducing Craig, who you just met, my Chi Alpha director, some of you guys know, to some of our folks that were praying before service and pre-service prayer. And one of our students, I'm not going to say who, um, I was saying, yeah, Craig was my Chi Alpha director at the University of Alabama. And one of our student leaders said, oh, like 30 years ago, that's awesome. So it's like, why would Emily Sutherland think that? I have no idea. I believe that's what they call shade on Tumblr, so whatever Tumblr is. I am really excited um, about a few things before we jump into our text. If you want to turn in your Bibles or your YouVersion app, we'll be in 1 Samuel, primarily in chapter 3. But before we jump into tonight's teaching on Samuel, I, I did think it was important to mention a few things. Um, I, I never want to use uh, this time around the pulpit for announcement of events or things, but instead to hopefully drive some of the conversations that we have as a community and as a ministry. So anytime I take a few moments before jumping into the text, I, I do so um, not very often, and I do so with great care um, to make sure that from in this time in the service that we're communicating values and vision uh, and not just saying things that we think might help you, but we're not sure if that makes sense. And so with that being said, I wanted to mention two things. One, and I mentioned it last week, is our racial reconciliation group. Um, it starts, to, well, preview is tonight at 10 p.m. You've heard probably for a little bit about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, but I just wanted to say there have been some very gracious um, students of color that are in our community that have walked with me over the past year uh, to help shape this curriculum, to help shape this group. Um, and so there have been people that have invested their experiences, both good and bad, both easy to hear and difficult to hear, that have really pre-blessed this group through their efforts. And I think it's important that we are doing this uh, because in, in one of the pieces of, of curriculum that's kind of the guiding conversation force, they make a point that I think is so true. It's that if uh, the church or if a ministry does not look like an alternative or a different reality world in this issue or in others that Jesus loses credibility. I think that's true because in the Gospel of John it says that people out there will know that we are gods by our love for one another in here. And so if we don't allow ourselves to be challenged, if we don't allow prejudices may not realize that we might be harboring or we're handed down to us and that we don't question, I, I do think that we can unintentionally cause Jesus and his church to lose a credibility, and Jesus deserves to be viewed as credible by all. And so I do want to mention that this is so important for us as a community. Um, I would say that if this is your passion, I'd love to have you there. If you think this is totally weird, I don't know why we're doing this. I don't know if I want you in the group, but you need the group, you know? I mean, it's too honest. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But if you're sitting here like, I don't know why we're doing this, I'm like, this group is for you, but maybe next time. Um, no, but we do want to see um, ourselves being reconciled to Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are ministers of reconciliation in all aspects. And I know being a, a, a campus minister, um, both um, having experience in ministry in the Bible Belt and here, that oftentimes the last thing that people submit to the lordship of Jesus 
is ingrained cultural prejudices, some of which they recognize and some of which they don't. And I love many of you too much to let you go through college without being challenged in this area. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So that's tonight. Second thing I wanted to mention before I jump into our text um, is Black History Month. Yeah. I, I think it's important to realize that I mentioned it not to be politically correct, but to try to be more kingdom-minded. That Jesus desires for all people of all tongues, tribes, and nations to proclaim his name. And that we cannot fully appreciate God as creator if we devalue any part or aspect of his created beings. And so I, I want to just say that. I, there's been few areas that have gone before where I haven't said something, and, and I regret it. And so I, I do want us, especially if, if you're in this ministry and you look like me, um, to be mindful of the opportunities that you have to learn and to honor and to appreciate others that may not look like you during this month. And it shouldn't just stay in this month, um, but a lot of people just, a lot of us need a month to get started for a lifestyle of difference to happen, um, just to be honest. And so uh, I, I wanted to read something. Um, this pastor, David Mathis, he looks like me, and he said this. He said uh, something really important. He said, if you believe in the kingdom of God, and if you hate human and personal pride, and you hate the systems of darkness of this world, then you have to realize that this month and this time and loving by listening is of the utmost importance. And that ultimately, if we're kingdom-minded, Black History Month isn't for a them out there, it's for all of us. And it's for all of us under the fatherhood of God to experience true brotherhood and true sisterhood. So maybe that means for you, um, studying a little bit more about black history. Maybe that means for you, exposing yourselves to some amazing things that have happened throughout history in churches that were primarily African American. One thing that I've been learning over the past year is that I'm limiting God when I view Christianity through one specific cultural lens. Um, and so there's some great books that I would recommend. You can learn about Lemuel Haynes and Daniel Payne and Francis Grimke. Um, by this great book called The Faithful Preacher, recapturing the vision of three pioneering African-American preachers by Tabite Anibwali um, from the Gospel Coalition. You can read this great book called Bloodlines that some of our staff are reading um, from John Piper. Um, there's also a great book that I'm reading right now and have been struggling to read through because it is so surprising and it is so painful, and it's such a place of privilege that I can, like, close the book. And it's, some people who have this experience don't close it because it's not a book, it's their lives. But Tenahasi Coates, Between the World and Me, um, if you haven't read that book, um, you should read that book. Because oftentimes we love people by listening, not by defending, not by arguing, and not by making it about ourselves. And so I, can I encourage us in that, uh, that we pay attention? I, I, would hate for, <laughs> I would hate for, like, the calendar that says it's Black History Month to have more compassion than a community of Jesus followers have towards students of color on this campus and in the kingdom. I think that would be a shame. So it's Black History Month. I think it's important to mention from the pulpit. You might be surprised by that. That's okay. You can be surprised and grow. That's what this place is for. 
Great. Let me pray, and let's just keep on offending people in the right ways tonight. Awesome. Jesus, you're good. You have challenged me. You have changed me. God, and you're in the business, and you have the desire to change people, to make us not just image bearers of you, but to make us both image bearers and children of you, sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. I pray that as we read from the Old Testament tonight, God, that you would help us to learn how to live more like you had intended, and that we'd realize that Scripture is good. It's good for encouragement and rebuke and correction, but that it's from you and it reveals you and that we'd be open to it. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Tonight we're talking about the person of Samuel, and this founder series is important because we're looking at people who have come before us in the faith, one, to celebrate what they allowed God to do in their lives, but also so that we might find an example or a template or a model to follow in which we can become more obedient as we follow God. Or in other words, that we recognize that the good news does certainly involve the cross, but the good news was proclaimed by Jesus pre-crucifixion, which tells us the good news is actually the coming kingdom of God, not just later in heaven, but on earth now. And that story isn't just written in the person of Jesus, it's written throughout the entire narrative of scripture in the person of God. So 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10 gives us an introduction on who Samuel was and his origin stories if you will. I'll read these verses, and then we'll study together, and we'll look at his life as a whole, and then we'll spend a few moments looking at a few areas where I think us specifically, AU Chi Alpha, can learn from how he followed God and from the things that he might have struggled with. So 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went away and he lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Verse 9, so Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say this, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10, the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak for your servant is listening. In the Old Testament, Samuel has an important role. He's in the charge or is leading God's people as prophet and as judge in a similar way to we see in the life of Deborah, which we studied last week. We have a little bit more information as to how his story or his interactions with God began, and it's a very interesting origin story, and I want to unpack it for a few moments. What's interesting to note right off the bat in verse 1 is that the boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord under Eli. I don't have time to get into it, but Samuel was a miracle and a result of prayer. Um, his whole 
life was that from his mother Hannah. What's crazy is that she gave him as an offering, and he was living under the care of Eli in the temple, and so he did not personally know the Lord yet. We found this out in this passage that we read, but he was in the service of the temple under Eli, which is crazy cool because then Hannah has a lot more kids after that, which is a great like miniature lesson that when we have hopes and dreams and we give them to God, he multiplies them and does things with them we cannot expect or imagine, and so we see this happening in the life of Samuel, and that's why it says that he's living with Eli. That's why later in that passage that we read, Eli calls him a son. He's like an adopted son to Eli, which will come into play in just a few moments. But I love this, and focus on it with me in verse 1. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. I think we should just jump in right off the bat. Samuel didn't allow the norms or his previous experience to determine how and when God was going to act in his life. In fact, in that passage, it says that he didn't even know the Lord. Here's what I think is going on in most of our lives. We know that God did so much to free us from our sin. Or as C.S. Lewis says, that before knowing Jesus, it's not that our desires are completely wrong. It's that we are far too easily pleased. And then we see God inspiring and calling new desires out from us. Or as Ignatius would say in Ignatian spirituality, that our sins are just disordered attachments because Satan, the enemy of our soul, can't create, can't cultivate, can only twist and turn. And so when you and I are tempted to do things that are not in line with God's best, it's not that our desires are completely crooked. It's that we're thinking about doing things that God designed for us in a non-God specific way or in a way that's not under the ordination of who God is or who he's called us to be. So I think we get that. We understand that. We've talked about that all through the book of James last semester. For previous years, we've said, and we've tried to teach, and we've tried to show you that God desires to free you and I from our sin, from the sin that exists within as part of our nature, from the brokenness and the effects of sin in this world that exists outside of us. Yet I think as we allow God to do that, there's an important next step that some of us can easily miss. It's that we need to allow God to free us from the preferences we hold relating to who he is. We need to allow God to free us from the preferences that we hold relating to how we think his church should operate. And maybe, just maybe, we need to let go of our preferences to how we expect God to move even in our own services at TNW or in the life of Chi Alpha here. And here's why. Because although what we think doesn't determine God's size or his existence objectively, what you and I think or expect of God in our own lives can limit how he works in our situation subjectively. That you and I unknowingly, because of preferences, if we allow them to live, we allow them to place limits on who God is and how we can expect him to move. This comes out later to play multiple times in Samuel's life. Let me just give you kind of a quick snapshot of his entire life summarized. Samuel grew in stature and in favor with God and men. We find that in 1 Samuel 2.26. Samuel spoke the truth at all times despite the anticipated outcome or backlash, which we see in 1 Samuel 3.11-18. Samuel brokered peace and saw the ark return, 1 Samuel 7.9-13. And then Samuel submitted his preferences and his plans to the Lord's will, which we see in 1 Samuel 8.6-21. Samuel then goes on to anoint the two kings of Israel, starting with Saul, which begins in 1 Samuel 10.1. 1. 
Samuel anoints David to be king, which seemed foolish at the time because David's own father doesn't put him up in this weird audition process, if you will, when the prophet comes. He like forgets that he has his son because he thinks there's no way this guy's going to be king. Samuel sees him not for how people saw David, but how God saw David, and that's in 1 Samuel 16. Find out that Samuel's leadership left a legendary mark on those he led. And Jeremiah mentions that in chapter 15 and 1 of the book of Jeremiah. If we go back to the story that's happening in 1 Samuel 8, I want to share it with you and I'll paraphrase it for context. Samuel submits his preferences and his plans to the Lord's will. He does this multiple times in his life. In this particular passage, it's because Israel was desiring a king, and up until this point in the story of God and his people, Israel did not have a king. God actually had intended that his people, the Israelites, would not have a king so that they would be different than the other peoples and the other gods that those people were following. It was a way that he set them apart, which is where we get the word holy. Holy just means set apart. So the people were set apart from other peoples is that their government, their way of life did not operate under a king, but instead under judges or under prophets or under God's direct intervention. So what happens is that the people start clamoring in the rebellion for a king, and they start telling Samuel, we need a king. And what's interesting is that initially he's, he's displeased. He's kind of like, I know what God said. We're not supposed to have a king. I don't want to have anything to do with this. He might have said, ain't nobody got time for that. That's just my own theological meanderings. But then he does something that I think you and I don't do enough. He doesn't act on his preferences or his initial response, but he asks God about them. When you and I have preferences in life, especially as they relate to ministry or they relate to how we expect God to work, we have a choice. We can either act on those preferences or ask God about those preferences. Samuel asks God about those preferences, and God in his graciousness says, I did not want my people to have a king but I will allow them because that's their desire to have a king. It's not going to go well. I'm going to try to bless it as much as I can, but I, we're going to let it play out. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians. It says, if we sin so much and our hearts are hardened, God will give us over to our desires and we will have less of a chance of knowing who he is. God in his graciousness allows us the choice of where we direct our lives, even when it means that we would direct our lives farther from him. What's interesting is that Samuel goes on to anoint a king, but even earlier in his life, he'd seen this lesson play out that his preferences and his plans need to be submitted to the Lord's will in order for him to be a force for the kingdom. It happens in 1 Samuel 3. He heard from the Lord that his mentor Eli, his adopted father, the person that's been taking care of him since he was four years old, we see that the Lord tells Samuel to tell Eli that Eli's sons will not inherit Eli's leadership, Eli's anointing, Eli's leadership mantle. They will not carry on his name because they have been disobedient. That's awkward, right? Like first time on the prophecy wagon, you know, he gets to tell his mentor, sorry, your kids suck. Not me. That was God. Nobody wants to do that. What I appreciate about Samuel and that what you and I need to learn is that in order to be used by God, we have to be used by God in the moments where it involves affirming somebody, calling truth in their lives, saying God is working in you, but also the times when we have to bring gentle and careful rebuke. That if we're to truly be 
used by God. We can't pick and choose the way in which we want God to work through us or in us or around us. The text tells us in 1 Samuel 3 that Samuel didn't want to do this, but he does, and he's faithful, and that Eli becomes prepared for this, and Eli actually helps hand off this ministry of being a judge and a prophet and a ruler to Samuel himself. And so all throughout Samuel's life, we see him going from being what some was referred to as a kingmaker, anointing kings, to one of the kings starts to live a life of disobedience, and he has to go back to that king and say, remember when I anointed you? Well, some bad news, you're no longer God's chosen anointed king. I love how Samuel is willing to be spiritually adaptable. He is allowed and able to be used by God so much because he is so tied into the heart of God, he doesn't mistake that for the methods of God. That he is willing to be used in different ways in different seasons. One of the kind of core statements that we share with leaders, which, which is kind of funny um, because it's about a friend of mine, but one of the core statements we share in our like, next level intensive leadership class is this. It's called, don't be a Ryan Barber. And I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because that was very specific, like truth, kingdom, principle from his life that I just stole. But my friend Ryan Barber is a type of guy who is on Facebook a lot, and he uh, has a six-pack, which is like almost as solid as mine, but not there yet. Why is there laughter? That sucks. Why is it coming from my wife? Whatever. And Ryan posted photos of himself during the winter time at an ice skating rink on Facebook with the caption, I can't believe they kicked me out for not wearing a shirt. Do you guys have a friend like that? I do. His name is Ryan Barber. Um, and so when we're training new leaders about how to respond to God's voice, we like to say, or I like to say, I don't know if the staff likes to say it because it's kind of silly, but I like to say, like, don't be a Ryan Barber. Like, that's just like a core value. Like, don't be the guy who doesn't know what's appropriate in certain seasons. Like, don't be the guy that gets kicked out of a skating rink because you don't have a shirt on because it's winter and because it's, like, random to brag about online. But I love you if you're listening um, to the podcast. Um, so we say that, and it's, it's a truth taken from this story because Samuel is able to be used for a long time by God because he doesn't become tied down to one way in which God works. The Old Testament says that God's ways of thinking are higher and greater than ours, and sometimes we allow our preferences on how God used to work to become a roadmap that we assume is God's for how he will work. And we unintentionally limit God in our lives and the lives of our friends when we do that. Another way to put it is, is like this, is that we can disciple people only according to our own story that this is what got me in small group, and this is what got me in church, and this is what got me to go on a mission trip. So I'm just going to repeat that, you know, and, and hope that it works. But what's beautiful about Jesus and what he calls us to do as Christ's ambassadors is to contextualize the gospel and love, which simply means to personalize it. That God loves and responds to people so differently in Scripture. Right? Like people come up to him with all different ailments. He's never like, you know what, I really don't do the healing the blind thing. Sorry, but here's some manna from the Old Testament. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that, right? Like, as he knows people, he meets them where they're at in love and in care. Samuel allows his life to be an example of that because he listens to the heart of God and he is willing for God to write whatever path God chooses. Samuel lives with no preferences, but he lives by principle. And the principle he lives by is, if God says it, I'll believe it. 
If God does it, I want in. I love the words that he said. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak. He gets it pretty straight. We often miss. Is it in prayer? It's more important for God to speak than it is for me or you to speak. And then he says, Lord, which is great. Josh talked about it earlier during worship. Like, Jesus isn't just our Savior. Jesus isn't just a lifeboat. Jesus isn't just a friend. Jesus isn't just something cool. Uh, Jesus is Lord if we follow him. He is in charge. He is in king. He is enthroned. And then I love how he says, for your servant is listening. He identifies both the identity and function of who he is and who God is and what that relationship should look like. When I read that, I was so convicted. Most of my prayers, especially in college, didn't go like that. They more like, listen, Jesus friend, for your favorite child is speaking. Make my dreams come true. That's why I'm not in the Bible, by the way. There's probably other reasons, but. Time and time again, God surprises, God wrecks, and God ruins what Samuel thought was going to happen with Eli's sons. Interestingly enough, Samuel's own sons were living in disobedience and were not allowed to carry on his ministry. And so he had to get used to the idea of passing the baton to somebody else. Seeing a king, which he knew wasn't God's initial designed will, and he has now a role in anointing the king. He has a role in saying you're no longer living as God's anointed. He's willing to be spiritually versatile, not based on the culture and not based on his preference, but based on what God is instructing him. So it's not that God just renovates how you and I interact with sin. It's also how we interact with him. It can be very easy I fall to this all the time to do ministry by memory. What worked last semester, I'm just going to do it again. The conversation I had about this or that or this struggle or that struggle, I'm just going to have it again. And yes, there is some power in routine. There's some power in the disciplines, no doubt. But there is a difference doing ministry from memory and doing ministry from having your ear to the mouth of God. People like Eli and Samuel and David, all were people in the Old Testament who were willing to hear both positive and neg negative things, seemingly negative things from people that God put in their lives. Last week, we talked about having a spirit of Deborah, being able to speak prophetically, to be a truth teller to people in your life, in your classes, in your family, in your small group, saying the truth about who God is. What's equally important is to be like Samuel or to be like those that Samuel influenced is to be willing to hear those things. To not just be a spokesperson for God, but being willing to hear from God. And here's what I know, is that if I only hear from God from the filter of myself, I end up with a Jesus that looks a lot like me instead of me looking more like Jesus. Because if Jesus doesn't disagree with me, you aren't following Jesus. If Jesus never upsets you, I'm sorry, but you're probably following a picture of Jesus that you created in your own image, not a picture of Jesus, grace personified, which God created. You and I have to be willing to submit ourselves. Never want to bring up the S word, right? Everyone's like, submit? What? How did he sneak that in there? We have to submit ourselves to the godly people that God has put around us in order that we might grow, in order that we wouldn't be the only filter by which we process both the communal workings of God, the prophetic workings of his spirit, and what we see in scripture. For me, that's people like Craig, like Josh Moran, who's at UVA Chi Alpha, our district director. Stepha Chappelle, who'll be at retreat. Jeremy Steffens, my pastor at NCC. 
It's the staff team here, Natalie and Brittany and Josh. And it's not easy to submit yourself to somebody else. Ephesians says it well that we're to submit one another, to one another out of love for one another and out of reverence for Christ. That true friendship is submitting both our preferences to each other, but also being willing to be spoken truth when it's both easy and when it's hard by somebody you trust. I don't love being challenged, but I need to hear what God is saying. And I need to hear what God is saying through others. For you, it's probably your small group leader, or if you're a small group leader, it's your staff team. And let me be honest, I would rather just sit all day in the DAV, and I know I already do that. I would rather sit all day in the DAV and just, like, encourage people and say nice, fuzzy, fluffy things to people all day. That would be awesome. The biblical encouragement, biblical encouragement means to infuse courage to someone, to invite and call someone to live beyond themselves, to say, I love you, and I love your future more than I love your current feelings. Proverbs says that a father that loves is a father that disciplines. Well, I have a son, I've been a a dad for two years, which means I'm an expert, and I can bring him up in any sermon illustration I choose, so I'm going to do that right now, Uh, and I'm definitely not an expert, and this story will demonstrate it. I find oftentimes when I'm exhausted and uh, I'm feeling a little bit lazy, Jeremiah will do things, and and I struggle with this, my wife doesn't struggle with this because she's holier than me in this area. I struggle with this. He'll do things that are clearly against the rules, and I don't have a desire to correct them. I might be like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Like, he bit my hand, but he was really aiming for the pizza that's in the fridge. Honest mistake. Totes, ovs, pizza grab. What did did he do the other day? Oh, he, (laughs) this is so bad. I really wish my wife wasn't here right now. Um. He does this thing now. He was like, Dad, stop. Go in the other room. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, man. (laughs) It's like, I got an iPhone and some headphones. It's not really punishment to be away from you, bro. (laughs) My Hannah's like, yeah, he shouldn't really talk like that to people. I'm like, oh, he should not talk that way to you. Mean, I don't really mind that much. That's so bad, right? Just yesterday, or maybe, just, no, just today, um, he has this pet shark. That's not real. That would be awesome. All the animal lovers are like, that would not be awesome, and I agree. That would not be awesome. Those animals should not be pets, Katie Zimmerman. <laughs> so he was watching TV this morning, um, and I get out of the bathroom, just doing bathroomy stuff, and um, he's like, ah, ah, dad! And I was like, oh, what did he do while I was in the bathroom? And I look, and he's like, the shark, his shark is biting him. He's like, my shark is biting me! I'm like, tell Sharky to stop. <laughs> and he's like, Sharky, go to timeout. Because we have like this like little front door area in our house about this big. And since we have a one bedroom, we kind of made a makeshift timeout space, which there's like these invisible walls that for some reason he respects. <laughs> and he, he went over to the corner and was like, go to timeout, Sharky. But then he threw the shark into the timeout, which I have never done <laughs> to him. I can't speak for my wife. You can ask her laters. 
But I realize it's when I'm lazy and when I'm tired is when I kind of slack on discipline. It's because laziness is just self, selfishness. It's just like, yeah, I don't really have the energy to love you. <laughs> Sorry. New show on Netflix. Expressing care to someone is loving them and not allowing selfish interests to get in the way. Not allowing how you might feel about me in that moment. Like when your small group leader checks in with you and says at a one-on-one, hey, I've, tell me about your Bible reading this week. And you're like, oh, I didn't really do it. And your small group leader has that loving but disappointed look on their face. Like, oh, it sucks. You suck right now. <laughs> you committed to doing that, and now you didn't. What are we going to do? <laughs> and you're like, oh, hey, Kai Alpha. Dang it, they don't love me. They're so harsh on me. It's like, no, they just want something better for you in that moment than you want for yourself. They love you in that moment. When I discipline Jeremiah, it's not because like, I enjoy throwing him into timeout like Sharky. Because I don't want him acting like a two-year-old when he's at AU in 20 years on a free scholarship paid for by Chi Alpha alum. <laughs> That's called speaking prophetically. <laughs> Proverbs says that flattery is worthless, it's empty, but wounds from a friend are true and helpful. I need to challenge you. The staff needs to challenge you. Your small group leader needs to challenge you. It's not because we just love conflict. That would be unhealthy if we just, like, loved conflict. We're also not here just because we couldn't get jobs elsewhere. One of the greatest deceptions of the enemy is for you to think that we're trying to fight you when actually we're fighting for you. When you leave a one-on-one or a small group and you're like, man, Kyle, it's so hard these days. I wanted to go back when I was a freshman. They just gave me free stuff. Now they charge me for books in the lobby. How dare they? It's just we didn't love you as well back then because we didn't know you as well. Like people that like do the, like the slow clap for me the loudest are the people that don't meet up with me regularly one-on-one. It's the people that are like, oh, he's probably so awesome. Yay! The people that I meet up regularly with where I'm like, hey, do you mind if I say something hard? I'm like, X, Y, can I challenge you real quick uh, to just grow deeply in this moment, yes or no? You don't have to say, if you say no, you just don't get to grow. But if you say yes, you can't blame me for being harsh. That conversation plays out. When I'm like, hey, Suze, I get to meet up with Susie, I'm like, hey, you're not going to like anything I'm about to say. Should I say it or not? And she's like, just say it. When I'm meeting with Steph in the mud box, which is the worst kept secret. Well, it's just like the worst place to be, so it's not a secret. But anyway, the mud box is terrible. We're in the mud box, which dreams of growing up to be the dab one day. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Steph, what if we thought about that differently? Or, yeah, tell me a little bit more about why you decided to do that. Help me understand what the heck you were thinking. When we have those conversations, those three individuals, and hopefully you understand that it's somebody fighting for them, not somebody fighting with them. 
It's understanding the truth that Jesus says in the New Testament that I must first go with Christ in death before I can come with Christ in new life. So when I affirm you, and when your small group leaders affirm you, and your staff mentor affirms you, they're affirming the things of your life that they want to see grow into more life. But when they say a rebuking word, they're trying to kill the things that are the worst things about you, your flesh. And there's theological precedent for that. That you and the worst parts of your flesh must die so that in the spirit you would be made new again in Christ. In order to grow in this community, you have to allow for people to be a Samuel in your life. You cannot be a Deborah on your own without having some type of spiritual covering or submitting to a spiritual authority. We often think that love is just fuzzy or an emotion or warm, but love in 1 Corinthians 13 is strong, it is disciplined, it is more than a feeling. We often don't appreciate rebuke or challenge because we don't realize how high the stakes truly are. We don't realize where sin would lead us. We don't realize how far off we'd be from the path. And we don't realize how sweet grace would taste. I love what some of my friends um, influenced by Jesuits at Georgetown would say. Augustine said this, and it's been lived out through the Jesuits for years. It's that we should be grateful for our sins in the sense that our sins are harbingers or messengers of God's grace. Like, if the point of all biblical correction is reconciliation, and return to right standing, which it is. We see that in Galatians 6. We see that in Matthew 18. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. All of us should be postured towards joy when repentance and rebuke comes. I'm not usually like that. And I know why, because I assume that I've got it together until somebody tells me differently. But the gospel says we don't have it together at all, and we should learn and grow into who God's called us to be, and that's going to require tension. Or that, that verse, right, that's like on a lot of bumper stickers in the South, is like iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Like, you realize that's like, oh, that's so cool. You're like, no, iron sharpening iron is a violent process. Don't get your hands by that. Keep Sharky away. Spiritual growth is a violent endeavor because the worst parts of you are being put to a cross. And the best parts of you are coming to new life in Christ. In a moment, the band's going to come up, and we're going to pray through our response. Every time we preach or teach, we don't do so for applause, but we do so for action, action in your lives and action in the life of our community. But I, I want us to think about something. Maybe you could go this week as a practical action step and ask your small group leader, ask your staff mentor a question that I've only dared once in my life to ever ask somebody is what's something that you've been praying for me privately, an area that you'd hope I'd grow in over the next semester? Because I promise you, your small group leader has like been waiting for that opportunity to unleash love in the form of correction in your life. Some of our staff, we ask this to each other, uh, not in these same words, but it's just simply put, like, what are the blind spots? Or, or can, what do you see in my life that I don't see? Those questions are scary but if we allow fear to run our lives, we'll never ask them. And the problem with that is that everybody will know but us. That you can't hide your weaknesses. You can kind of ignore them. But it's not like your small group leader is like, you know, we've been meeting every week. I actually thought you were perfect. I was betting that you were Jesus. That old second coming thing, I thought it was you, freshman. thought it was you. 
No, they'll be like, actually, let's have a few more one-on-ones because I got a list of things that I want to see you grow in because I want God's best for you. I want an abundant life for you. Many of us, though, have been hurt by unhealthy conflict, and we've tossed out all conflict together. We should desire biblical conflict in that we should desire for the things of our life that are not of God to be put to death so that the things of God can be brought to life. Paul says it like this in his letter to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and it could apply to conflict and challenge, is that misuse shouldn't lead to non-use. That when you've seen something done wrong, you shouldn't disengage, but you should just engage with more integrity, engage more fully. But speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, now that I've brought it up, what a great segue for a Pentecostal minister to just step in. It does go back to our passage in Samuel because verse 1 says that the things of God or God speaking was rare at the time. But I love that Samuel didn't allow his experience to determine his theology, but he allowed God to determine how he would move in his life. Let me tell you, as we lean in to what God's called us to do as a Deborah, as we're opening ourselves to be spoken our lives into by the Samuels in our lives, and maybe one day being a Samuel to somebody else, being versatile spiritually, speaking truth, speaking good, easy things, but speaking hard things that will eventually bring joy and maturity and the glory of God. We cannot do this on our own. Jesus left earth and left his disciples post-cross, post-resurrection, so that the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit would come. If you're a follower of Jesus, and there's many of us here, you believe in personified grace, Jesus, fully man and fully God, prophesied about 300 times in the Old Testament, being born to a virgin, living perfectly, doing miracles, dying and rising from the dead, I just don't see logically why visions and tongues and miracles would freak you out. Because if you and I think that maturity is removing mystery from our faith, you're wrong. That the more we grow in Christ, we should become more comfortable with being uncomfortable. We should grow more aware that he's going to do things however he wants. And it's not our job to put him in a box. It's our job to get on whatever train he's driving. So much of my life I said, Jesus, bless this. Jesus, bless that. Jesus, come on, let me sprinkle some Jesus on my life. Instead of saying, Jesus, what are you doing, and can I just be a part of it? That's what Samuel did every time. He said, what are you doing, God? I want to be in. Whatever you're doing, whatever way you're doing it, I'm in. Because if you and I believe that God can actually change people from the inside out, maybe someone in your small group, you kind of heard on the grapevine that they speak in tongues or they do these like weird things from the book of Acts. Or they're in small group and they're like, I have the sense that the Lord might be saying something to me. And they share something that's biblical, like, hey, we should pray for this person, or we should read this passage. That shouldn't surprise you and I. In fact, the greatest threat to our spiritual growth and going to the next level as a community is being surprised. Being surprised by our preferences and how they rule us, subtly but subversively against the ways of God. Being surprised that there is suffering in this life. We talked about it all last semester. We aren't to be surprised. We are not to be surprised by the fact that our life isn't easier with Jesus. It's just more meaningful. And that in eternity we get him when we get ease, but not here and not now. It can also hurt us if we're surprised by how we expect or want God to move. Because let me tell you, 
with all that we see happening in culture, with all that we want to see happening in this community, you're going to need to have a different expectation of God. You're going to need to get a different container for God's goodness. We see that story in the New Testament, a different wineskin. Sometimes you need new wine, new things to fill it, but sometimes you need a whole new container. And I think that what God wants us to do is to say, would you just have a whole new container in my life? Because I can't keep filling up new stuff in an old container. I need you to completely renovate that. I realize that when things that are supernatural frustrate me or make me anxious or make me weirded out, it's usually because I've given too much weight to my negative experiences as opposed to trusting in Jesus and who the Holy Spirit is. You and I are here because of the Holy Spirit. You and I are here as non-Jewish believers because of what happened in the day of Pentecost in Acts. And you and I are expected by God to live out the signs and miracles of wonders empowered by the Spirit for God's glory and our maturity because we believe in something that is supernatural, that is not normal. So as we pray and as we respond, as we sing another song of worship, maybe you need to take time at the altar, you need to pray with a friend, you need to think through. God, would you identify in me or help me to identify my preferences and would you put them on a cross so that you would live in, around, and through my life in all ways? Maybe it's the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe it's speaking loving but hard words to people. But can I tell you, all of us testify and prophesy and know in part 1 Corinthians 13. But what God is telling our community through the word and through prayer is that he wants to do more in us. And for that to happen, he needs more of us. And what keeps us back, what's kept me back when I've sat in your chair is my preferences. My ideas about God limit who God gets to be in my life. So maybe as we stand all together and pray and as we think through how we respond, I want to pray this simple prayer over us. Let's stand together. Jesus. Would you allow us to be willing to be surprised, to become spiritually flexible and adaptable? Would you allow our hearts to be close to yours, but our hands to never be tied on to a specific way for you to move, but we would just be grateful that you are moving. Reveal in us areas where we need to allow a Samuel to speak into our life and give us joy when we're called to repentance because we're put back in right standing and right relationship with you, Jesus. As we sing these words, God, make them a prayer in our hearts and our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.